the old pilot's plain tales. But sir, Harriers don't actually hover. A friend of mine, another captain from my airline, died well before his time from illness a couple of years ago. Like me, he flew in the military, but he served in the Navy as a Sea Harrier pilot. His obituary in one of our major broadsheets told a little of his life. During the conflict, he was described as an aggressive and most capable fighter pilot who had done very well indeed on active service in the battle for the Falklands. His greatest test came when he was patrolling on a mission at extreme range when his ship, the Invincible, sometimes nicknamed by us the Invisible, ran into thick fog. Whilst the ship searched for clear air, Charlie made an approach, but he flew past the ship without being able to spot her in the thick fog. Running seriously short of fuel, he had one more chance. As he approached the ship at slow speed, he saw a faint diffuse glimmer from the ship's searchlights. He flew along the top of the fog and hovered his harrier beside the glow. With less than 60 seconds of fuel left, he lowered his aircraft into the murk, and at only 50 feet did the shape of the superstructure start to appear beside him out of the mist. The first anyone on the deck saw of Charlie was the red-hot glow of his aircraft's rear nozzles as he appeared from nowhere and settled safely on the deck. Asked if he was scared, Charlie replied that he was so busy, mentally and physically, that he didn't have time to be frightened. But as soon as he landed, he started to shake, a condition that continued until he was met in the crew room by Invincible's captain with a large whisky. Charlie was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air. However, his bravery and skill were a mark of Harrier pilots around the world, as the aircraft was renowned for being a challenge to fly. It was in 1957 that the Bristol Engine Company proposed an engine design for a directed-thrust turbojet that could meet NATO's specifications for a new light tactical support fighter. It was the Hawker Siddeley Aircraft Company that bought the components of the design together as the P-1127 prototype, following the cancellation of a more advanced supersonic version on cost grounds. This aircraft was destined to fulfil Air Staff Requirement 345 for a vertical and short takeoff and landing, that is VSTOL, ground attack fighter. Sir Sidney Cam, Ralph Hooper and Stanley Hooker of Bristol Engines were the men who combined to create the concept. Close cooperation between the airframe and engine companies was vital, as the engine's ability to direct its thrust was essential to the way the aircraft was to operate. Rather than using rotors or a direct thrust engine, the Bristol Pegasus engine was an innovative design that would eventually produce more than 21,000 pounds of thrust. Of the six prototypes built, half of them would crash, including one at the Paris Air Show, which was unceremoniously dumped on the specially prepared pad that the competitor Mirage V-Stoll was to use later that day. There was no doubt the Harrier was a handful to fly, but from the P-1127 came the Kestrel, named from a small hawk that hovers over its prey. 
the RAF put in an initial order for 60, which they named the Harrier GR1 after a small hawk that, strangely, is not renowned for its hovering ability. The Harrier was only one of several Vestal fighter aircraft of its era, which included the Bell X-14, the Combat Pogo, the Mirage 8, the Entwick Lungring Sud, a consortium between Bolkow, Heinkel and Messerschmitt, VJ-101, the Rockwell Hummingbird, the VFW VAC-119B, and the Soviet Yak-38 Forger. Of all these, only the British Harrier and the Soviet Forger were to be put into production. Whilst the Forger needed an additional lift engine that was only used for takeoff and landing, the concept of the Harrier was considerably more elegant. The Harrier's two semicircular cheek air intakes fed a large volume of air into the twin shaft Pegasus turbofan, which initially was compressed by the three low-pressure compressor stages, which fed air to a front pair of rotating steel nozzles. Air then continued to the core of the engine through eight high-pressure compressors, the combustion chambers, the two high-pressure turbine stages, before exiting via the rear pair of rotating nozzles, this time made of mnemonic, a special heat-resistant nickel, chromium, titanium and aluminium alloy. Of interest, the two engine spools rotated in opposite directions to greatly reduce the gyroscopic forces that would otherwise hamper low-speed handling. The factor that limited engine thrust were the turbine blade temperatures, which were estimated through sensors in the jet pipe. In order to provide sufficient power for a vertical landing or for operations in hot high conditions, a 50-gallon distilled water tank above the turbine section provided water injection to the rear of the combustion chamber to keep the blade temperatures to an acceptable level. This limited maximum power for hovering to only 90 seconds. In forward flight, the Harrier was conventional in its control methods, but for vertical flight, the nozzles had to be progressively rotated from their rearward direction to point directly downwards, and engine power controlled to carry the weight of the aircraft as lift from the wings reduced. As the speed dropped, the effectiveness of the aerodynamic controls lessened, at which point the pilot relied on the reaction controls, thrusters mounted on the wingtips, nose and tail, which were fed with air bleed from the engine. Control of the thrusters was achieved through the stick and rudder pedals and worked in a similar sense to the cyclic controls of a helicopter. Out of interest, the nozzles were rotated with modified motorcycle chains. Vertical takeoffs weren't particularly common, as with a full fuel load, the amount of weapons that could be carried was limited. Much more common were short takeoffs, which started like a normal rolling takeoff with the nozzles full aft, but then at around 65 knots they were moved forward to a mid position so that the engine could help to both continue acceleration and lift the aircraft clear of the runway. During vertical takeoffs and landings, it was critical to keep the aircraft into wind, as it was possible for a side wind to overcome the power of the reaction thrusters. A small weather vane was mounted on the nose right in front of the windshield to help the pilot assess the wind direction. 
The RAF viewed the most vulnerable part of a fighting force as not so much the aircraft themselves, but the air bases they operated from. A few bomb craters in a runway could stop operations for several squadrons. The Harrier, however, could still fly from short, undamaged portions or could even be deployed to small prepared clearings, helipads, roads and the like. Its ability to be scattered to dozens of small operating pads near the front line was highly prized. With only a short transit to the battle area, it could get airborne and be on station very quickly and return to refuel and rearm in an equally short time. It was this ability that also made it attractive to the US Marine Corps, who, despite opposition in government, acquired the aircraft in 1971. Called the AV-8A, an initial order of 108 of them was placed, and then the Spanish and Thai governments bought the aircraft as well. More advanced versions were developed, which included the GR-3, the Sea Harrier for the Royal Navy, and the Marine AV-8C. A second generation of the Harrier, the AV-8B, was developed in the 1970s as a joint Anglo-American concept between McDonnell Douglas and British Aerospace. Due to rising costs, the UK withdrew in 1975, but the aircraft was completed and made its maiden flight in 1981. It went on to serve both the US and UK forces after Britain rejoined the programme. The upgrades were substantial, and it turned the aircraft into a night-capable, radar-equipped fighter that had a very advanced cockpit, and it had a substantial performance increase over the first-generation Harrier. This version also served with the Italian and Spanish navies, as well as the USMC and the RAF. The Harrier was always a crowd-pleaser. Its unique ability to transition from 580 knots into a vertical hover made it a big draw at air shows. Its potential to operate from small carriers and away from big air bases also made it a favourite with senior officers and strategic planners alike. However, the reality was often a little different. The support needed to operate from remote locations was substantial. Convoys of heavy lorries were required to move fuel, ammunition, bombs and spares. The aircraft was labour-intensive and an engine change quite likely went away from neatly swept airfields and with a flying machine that was akin to a vast hoover that loved to suck up debris required the entire wing to be lifted off the fuselage to gain access. When carrying weapons and a decent fuel load, its vertical takeoff capability could rarely be used, so a temporary takeoff strip was required, which in turn needed engineers and more heavy equipment. The dream of hiding a few aircraft on the side of a field under a few trees was just that, a dream. The pilots who flew the Harrier were generally accepted to be amongst the best. Those who graduated with the top marks were usually chosen to fly it. The aircraft was well known for killing the unwary, and it had a peacetime loss rate that was considerably higher than other types, so only those with the necessary skills were allowed into the cockpit. In the States, the Harrier was by far the most dangerous military aircraft they had. More than a third of the fleet 
were lost to accidents, a fact that its detractors often repeated. Of the Marine Harrier, Philippi Coyle, the Pentagon's chief weapons tester from 94 to 2001, said, What makes this situation so difficult is that we just don't have that kind of battlefield record to support the accidental deaths. The statistics supported this view, as the Harrier's lifetime accident rate was twice that of the F-16, which was also single-engined, three and a half times that of the F-18, which was another naval fighter, and five times that of the A-10, which had a similar role in ground attack. The British were much more accepting, despite their loss rate being even higher than the US forces. Part of this was due to the Harrier's enormous success during the Battle for the Falklands. The only British fighter able to operate so far from land was the Harrier, and it flew with great success from HMS Invincible and Hermes. 42 Harriers, a mix of Sea Harriers and RAF GR3s, were embarked, a small force when compared with the 122 serviceable jet fighters available to the Argentinian forces. It was the Sea Harrier that flew the vast majority of the sorties, nearly 1,500, and which also claimed the 20 kills, which included Flight Lieutenant Morgan's efforts when he shot down four aircraft on his own. Of note, however, the fabled VIF combat manoeuvre, vectoring in forward flight, that is often quoted by fans of the Harrier with more enthusiasm than knowledge, was never employed in actual combat. This manoeuvre involved the pilot shifting his nozzles from the aft position to the fully forward to allow a momentary increase of turn rate and sudden braking. The aftermath of a VIFT placed the aircraft in such a low speed and vulnerable position it was only really considered as a possible last-ditch manoeuvre. The RAF's GR-3s played a vital role during the ground war, performing close-air support missions by attacking Argentinian positions, suppressing enemy artillery and the like. During the war it flew the equivalent of six sorties per day per aircraft. The Harrier had played such an important role in protecting the naval fleet from repeated attack by enemy Mirage and Skyhawk fighters, that it truly won a place in the heart of the British people. The American experience with the Harrier has been less favourable, but it has never been in a conflict when only the Harrier was capable of operating. With so many options available to the American forces, the Harrier has only been there to complement other aircraft, and sometimes its vulnerability has shown. A single-engined aircraft will always be more easily brought down, and particularly when its heat source is near the centre of the fuselage, a missile hit will always be more effective. Add that to the Harrier's role of supporting troops close to the ground, and you get the sort of loss rate that occurred during the first Gulf War in 1991. The Harrier's attrition rate was 1.5 aircraft for every 1,000 sorties flown, compared with 0.5 for the A-10 in a similar role, and 0.2 for the single-engined F-16, and 0 for the F-18. The Harrier's airframe was packed with vital systems, and a hit almost anywhere would often fatally damage the aircraft. Five of the seven Harriers that took enemy fire were destroyed. 
The Marines, however, point to the Gulf War as the Harrier's proving ground. The Corps Commandant Alfred Gray Jr. told the Senate Armed Services Committee that its support for the AV-8B had paid off in spades. And the commander of the U.S. forces in the Gulf, General Schwarzkopf, cited the Harrier as one of several weapons that gave standout performances. So the Harrier certainly had its fans, one of which was Sir Thomas Sopwith, the famous World War I aircraft builder, who, late in his life, said, I still don't believe the Harrier. Think of the millions that have been spent on vertical takeoff in America and Russia, and quite a bit in Europe, and yet the only vertical takeoff aircraft which you can call a success is the Harrier. When I saw the Harrier hovering and flying backwards under control, I reckon I'd seen everything.